Welcome to the weekend edition of Fearless Firestarters. I'm Jason Whitlock, your host. Uh, hope you had a great week. We thought we did. Uh, we started out on Monday talking about Pride Month and where it came from and who's really to blame. And it's us. It's not them. It's our fault. Take a listen. All right. Uh, the In Your Face Sexual Depravity Showcase at the LGBTQ Plus Pride Celebrations acts as a mirror for the rest of us. It's a reflection of the culture Christian heterosexuals built, tolerated, and or enjoyed the last 60 years. We allow the centering of our sexuality in all aspects of American television, music, cinema, art, and culture. We sold hamburgers, magazines, cars, football, and everything else with sex. We giggled when Carl's Jr. decorated cheeseburgers with scantily clad supermodels. We dined at Hooters. We danced to Two Shorts Freaky Tales, Naughty by Nature's OPP, and Two Lives Crews. We want some We love Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Issue. The Cowboys Cheerleaders and Charlie's Angels. What do we always say? Sex sales? So it's disingenuous and naive to be shocked that, given the opportunity and leverage, the gay movement is selling its lifestyle with sex. They're simply mirroring the behavior of the formerly dominant culture. We made Pride Month and all the debauchery and grooming that comes with it inevitable. Like all problems, the solutions start with the Christian man or woman in the mirror. I had this epiphany this weekend while perusing Twitter and drinking in the disgusted tweets featuring videos of child-friendly debauchery at pride parades. Conservatives are growing brands and social media platforms highlighting drag queen story hours, LGBTQ teachers, grooming children, and the nonsensical ramblings of the identity confused. I'm gonna show you three different videos that kind of demonstrate, you know, what I'm talking about, these social media platforms that are showcasing this stuff and building a following by showcasing what the LGBT movement are doing. I, I believe the first one is a group at a pride parade in Washington, D.C., and all these videos, these three, are all from the Pride Parade in D.C., where a reporter is interviewing uh, people about their uh, identity and what they identify as. Um, I'm gay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what age did you know that you were gay? Um, I think at like 10 I knew that I, I think at 10, but I wasn't like, I, I wasn't clear on my gender. Yeah, I I think it, it was around like 10 as well when I, st I started questioning if I was bi. And then since then it was kind of like a, a slippery slope because I kept, I was like, am I bi, omni, lesbian? And then I, I kind of like came to the point and then now recently I've been like, am I pan? But then I like, I think now I'm starting to realize that I'm queer. But yeah, it was, it started around 10. It wasn't like fully formed, but I guess like that's when I realized, wait, that's a possibility? Yeah. I am genderqueer, trans mask, and queer. What's trans mask? Trans mask is like people under the non-binary umbrella identifying like or presenting mask. Masculine? Yeah. What about you? Um, I'm trans and uh, un my sexuality is unlabeled. Um, I use he, him pronouns. Yeah, and I use he, they pronouns. Tell us what you guys identify as. We're asking everyone here Gay. today. Gay. Gay, cis, um, what is it? Cisgender male. There we go. I don't know. Gender, gender neutral or gender fluid. I think that's what they said. I don't know. I'm confused. Do you identify as gender fluid? <laughs> I don't know. She, her, it. I feel like, honestly, honestly, it should not be a bad thing. Like, I've talked to people who go with they and them. I'm like, well, in the grammar of things, how would you want to represent yourself? I was like, 
I mean, I guess it, because it's like, you're, you're it, you're the it. Like, it shouldn't be a bad name, it should just be owned. Gay. Yes. Yes, I love- She's identify as he, she, her, oh. they. She. Um, pronouns are he, him, sometimes use they, I don't give a shit. I guess you could call me gay, I'm homo-flexible, really. I do like some women, but mostly men. I'm gonna show you more because I, I want us to fully understand what we have wrought with our own behavior. Uh, and so I think this next video is adults explaining why kids need to be at these pride parades. I noticed there's a lot of kids in attendance here um, this year. Are there always this many kids? And also, do you think it's a good thing? Absolutely, and it is a great thing because I feel like Making sure that children are aware of what is around them is important, you know? Just because you are around certain things doesn't mean that you're going to be persuaded to be a part of things, but you should be aware of the other type of people that live around you. And if you're not capable, you know, it's a developmental problem, and this is how we fix that problem. And for some of the kids who maybe saw some nudity here, maybe saw some twerking, what do you think about that? Sometimes when you grow up, you see some nudity. Do you understand that? It helps you to understand who you are. Sometimes you're going to see some twerking. Um, I absolutely love it. I work at a Montessori daycare, and we are very open sexuality-based with our children. We have several children that are non-binary, very queer, and it's just a beautiful community, so I love to see it here as well. They get the chance to see such a diverse culture. They get the chance to be open to whatever their body or their mind is telling themselves. They get to learn that at such a young age, and I love that for them. A lot of people like that are claimed to not be homophobic say that like they shouldn't get their kids in, in, involved. They shouldn't get kids involved with this type of stuff. But I think that like it should be in adding little kids to it. It kind of helps normalize pride. I like am so excited for our future because I know that it's going to be way more open and like accepting. And I'm really like happy that I see children here. All the time. I think they need to be showed from when they're young. To, to be accepting of stuff, so. I think it's a good thing, honestly. I feel like your kids should understand, sorry, should understand that it is actually okay to be who you wanna be at your age. And it gives you that time through puberty to understand if you're not that person. I don't really have an opinion either way. Uh, kids need to know these identities exist. Um, and I haven't seen anything I'd say that's outrageously inappropriate today. You know, because at the end of that second one, we saw the third one. So I, I, I'm, I'm not going to show the, the, the third video because there was a separate video just showing what the guy was doing at the end and that there were kids, uh, you know, coming in right behind that naked guy with the breast or whatever that was twerking on the police officer and ran the police officer off. It, it's, <laughs> I mean, this weekend I asked myself, why are gay people behaving this way? Why does it seem like their life mission is to shove their sexuality down all of our throats? The answer struck me while I was watching the movie Killer Joe, a 2012 drama featuring Matthew McConaughey and Juno Temple. For the past month, Amazon Prime has been recommending the movie to me based on my viewing history. McConaughey plays the role of a Dallas cop who moonlights as a hitman for hire. He's contracted by a drug dealer who wants his mother killed. The drug dealer offers Killer Joe, his virginal little sister, Juno Temple, as the down payment on the murder. This movie was filmed in 2010 when Juno Temple was 20 and Matthew McConaughey was 40. In the movie, Temple looks 15 or 16. 42 minutes into the movie, I stopped the movie as Temple stripped naked for McConaughey. I was uncomfortable. The movie was soft porn, a darker, more sexually explicit version of Kevin Spacey's American Beauty. 
Amazon recommended Killer Joe to me based on what I have previously watched. This says something about my taste in cinema and television. So I reviewed what I watched. I like dark crime dramas. The movies I watch the most are The Godfathers, Scarface, JFK. The TV shows I watch the most are The Sopranos, The Wire, The Shield, Game of Thrones, and Billions. I like crime, corruption, and sex. Amazon recommended that I watch crime, corruption, and sex. It fed me what I like. It's criminal, or it should be, that adults are taking kids to drag shows. It's corrupt that teachers see it as their responsibility to teach kids about gender and sexuality. It's sad that we've created a society that justifies criminality and corruption with sex. The LGBTQ crowd is mirroring an extreme version of the dominant culture's behavior. They're not doing anything we haven't done. Late last week, the delivery service Postmates released a Pride commercial with a food menu that is bottom friendly, meaning the food options are sodomy friendly. Postmates tweeted this with the commercial, you shouldn't miss a good meal for a good time. That's why this Pride, we've teamed up with Dr. Evan Goldstein and Rob Anderson to create the world's first bottom-friendly menu. Yup, it's real. Eat with pride. I can't adequately describe the commercial. You have to watch it for yourself. So, let, let's watch the Postmates commercial. What are you eating this pride? Well, if you're a top, it seems like you can eat whatever you want. But if you're a bottom, you're expected to starve? Aww. Not this pride. Introducing the bottom-friendly menu from Postmates. Aww. We teamed up with Dr. Evan Goldstein from Bespoke Surgical to bring you a menu of bottom-friendly foods backed by science. Insoluble fiber won't help you feel cute, so avoid things like whole grains, wheat bran, cauliflower, potatoes, legumes. Hold up, are you just fully diving into those beans? <laughs> The problem with these foods is they don't dissolve in water, which could cause a traffic jam in your digestive system, making a mess of your evening. Speaking of messy, it's a good idea to avoid dairy. I cannot handle lactose right now. Look at it. If you're going to eat something insoluble, give your body about 24 hours to process all of it. Eat me. Soluble fibers and protein are the key to having some good, clean fun. These all digest easily and slowly while feeding your good gut bacteria, which makes sushi a great bottom-friendly option. There's no right or wrong way to bottom, but if you're planning on getting peachy this pride, the bottom-friendly menu on Postmates has the kinds of foods that can keep you feeling good. Are you organic? I get it, I understand why you're repulsed watching the commercial. I certainly was when I originally saw it. But we have mainstreamed immorality. Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre headlined the Super Bowl halftime show. Snoop is a confessed pimp. Snoop, Dre, and Eminem specialize in making lyrical pornography. Their music targets kids. No one should be surprised that Lil Nas X and Cardi B are the next iteration of Snoop and Dre. Gay Pride is the next iteration of Playboy magazine. Let me make one more analogy. Gay Pride is January 6th. All of America watched the 2020 St. George Floyd riots. We watched cities burn, stores looted, and cops killed while corporate media justified the chaos and mayhem. A counter protest was inevitable. For decades, Popular culture and corporate media have celebrated heterosexual depravity. A counter-protest was inevitable. We're the George Floyd riots. Gay pride is MAGA. Make America gay again. All right, so that was Monday. Tuesday, I had to talk about uh, the Daily Wire's new movie, Terror on the Prairie, they hit a home run with What is a Woman, that documentary. I was not happy with Terror on the Prairie. Uh, I thought it missed the mark. Uh, 
Here, take a listen for yourself. Values versus votes. And it will revolve around my uh, experience last night with going to see uh, Terror on the Prairie. Uh, for those of you that do not know, that's the Daily Wire's latest movie. It's not a documentary, it's a movie. Uh, prairie, uh, Terror on the Prairie. It's starring uh, Gina Carano, uh, the Disney uh, actress who was canceled and landed at the Daily Wire and is restarting her career at, at the Daily Wire. Uh, Gina, former MMA uh, fighter, mixed martial artist, uh, I think ended up losing to Chris Cyborg and, and walked away from that and then launched an acting career. I was having a little success with Disney and I think with uh, Star Trek or Star Wars type characters and, and then uh, said a few things uh, that didn't fit the Hollywood narrative and kind of it actually elevated her profile because again, not to be dismissive, but you know, Gina Carano is not Meryl Streep. Uh, she's a former athlete, former mixed martial artist uh, who's dabbling in acting and, and is starting to build an acting career. Uh, so she's not Meryl Streep, you know, she's not some super duper thespian. Uh, she's not Margot Robbie. Uh, she's not some jaw-dropping, breathtaking, 105-pound uh, supermodel. Uh, you know, she's Gina Carano, attractive woman, attractive former athlete, uh, who's, you know, was some sort of Disney character. And this whole controversy that she got in about being canceled or whatever kind of heightened her career. And so uh, she's the big star of the Daily Wire's new movie, Terror on the Prairie. And they've built uh, a lot of their brand in terms of going in this movie direction about working with Gina. And, and so last night they debuted uh, the movie, uh, Terror on the Prairie. And as I'm prone to do, uh, I'm, I, I consider myself uh, one of the best unrecognized uh, movie critics in the country. I, I think that probably if there's, if I wasn't a college athlete, if I wasn't a sports writer, I was put on this earth to be a movie critic, television show critic. I, I, I think my analysis of movies and TV shows is as good as anybody's in the country. And, and so I go last night, they had their debut, their premiere here in Nashville. And man, is it a first class event. Uh, I was dressed kind of casually. I wore the same thing uh, that I had on yesterday's show, kind of a UPS brown look. Uh, but, and, and I didn't do any of the red carpet stuff and you know, all that Hollywood stuff that I left behind when I left LA, I wasn't interested in and really didn't carry those kind of expectations. And so when I showed up uh, to their premiere last night at the AMC Dine-In Theater in Franklin, uh, Tennessee, which is 20, 30 minutes outside of Nashville, uh, when I showed up and was like, oh my God, Everybody's dressed like they're going to the Oscars. And I mean, the women were dressed spectacularly and beautifully and uh, men were in, you know, tuxes and suits. And it, it was a great event. And particularly, you know, look, Nashville's got a lot going on. This area's got a lot going on. But this felt like a Hollywood premiere. And I was like, man. This is big time, they're taking it seriously. And obviously, we've seen the Daily Wire and their conversations about disrupting Hollywood, disrupting Disney, and, and creating culture so that you can impact the culture. We knew aspirationally that they wanna have major impact on American culture. They wanna take on the giants of all giants. and. <clears throat> coming off the success of the What is a Woman documentary, uh, they had a lot of great momentum going into this movie last night. What is a Woman came out, what, two weeks ago and is 
even with my little small quibbles, I have to acknowledge like, what is a woman? A fantastic piece of uh, content, uh, you know, groundbreaking, disruptive. You know, what I'd like to have seen them include the biblical aspect, absolutely. But no one can deny that that documentary is awesome and fits the Daily Wire brand. The Daily Wire is a disruptive organization. It's, a, it's being disruptive in the media space. The Daily Wire, uh, I believe, uh, over Facebook has more traction, more reach than the New York Times or any other media outlet. Uh, their stable of, of talent uh, is second to none. Uh, you know, with Ben Shapiro and Matt Walsh, who I've already mentioned, Andrew Claven, Michael Knowles, Candace Owens. Uh, they're being very, very disruptive in the media space, in the political media space. Uh, and what is a woman? So I'm kind of reluctant to say this because it's being disruptive in the documentary space. But terror on the prairie? not disruptive. And so I, I want to start here and, and play the movie trailer because this is, this is a Western movie starring Gina Carano. I would say it's set in the 1870s, I, I, I believe. I love Western movies. So let's go ahead and play the trailer just to give you a little taste. Like this is a big budget Western movie uh, featuring uh, Gina Carano who they uh, are promoting as their star of their film industry. Uh, let's play the, the trailer. Giving you a little taste of the trailer. Uh, and so I, I just, before I go full-throated into this, I wanna give you a little context as it relates to me. You guys remember a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Top Gun Maverick and, and we did the Fearless at the movies, basically, or Tennessee Harmony at the movies, and me, Bobby, Anthony, and TJ Moe talked about Top Gun Maverick. I'm a movie buff. I love Western movies. Love Western movies. And so just to give you a little bit more context, when I say I love Western movies, I want to tell you what kind of Western movies I love. And so here are my top five movie Westerns of all time. Uh, Pale Rider is at the top of, of my list. I love the movie Pale Rider. I love Clint Eastwood in the movie Pale Rider. I love the whole story of Pale Rider and a little mining town out west, probably in Sacramento or somewhere, and they're being taken advantage of, and Clint Eastwood's character, uh, there's a little girl that's halfway in love with him, and, and I think the, the, the mom is halfway in love with him, and he saves the whole town, and. Uh, shoots up the bad guys and rides out of town. And Pale Rider is playing all biblical scriptures of the Pale Horse and the Apocalypse. And Pale Rider is a great movie. Awesome movie. I can watch that anytime. I think it came out in like 85, 86, somewhere around that. Uh, my second favorite Western, Unforgiven. Clint Eastwood. I'm a Clint Eastwood junkie when it comes to where I should have mentioned High Noon or anything, but my second favorite is Unforgiven. Awesome, awesome movie. Uh, you know, a, a, well, let's just use the words they were using a Western. A whore is attacked and brutalized, her face cut up, 
uh, at a saloon somewhere and the, the other, her co-workers, her peers at this whorehouse uh, gather up some money uh, to find someone to avenge their death uh, or avenge the assault on this woman. And it turns out to be uh, Clint Eastwood. Awesome, awesome movie. Third favorite Western, <laughs> relatively new, Hateful Eight. I mean, if you wanna laugh, if you, if you wanna see Samuel L. Jackson at, at his best, clever, there's so much clever dialogue. To me, The Hateful Eight, anybody remember the show Deadwood on uh, HBO? The Hateful Eight is, has that kind of clever dialogue, twists and turns, it's, it's hilarious, it's, it's shocking, some of it, but I love The Hateful Eight. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson, awesome in The, hate, in the Hateful Eight. Django Unchained would be my fourth. Love Jamie Foxx. Uh, what he did in that movie, I've, it's a movie that I've rewatched several times. The scenes at the end where uh, Jamie Foxx is shooting up everybody and <laughs> shoots the one. This is just, it's hilarious. It's a great movie. Love Django Unchained. And then, anybody, if you love Pale Rider like I do, you gotta give it up for the original Pale Rider, which was basically Shane, the movie Shane with Alan Ladd. And, and that was kind of the blueprint. Pale Rider's really just a remake of Shane. So I, I just wanted to give you all that context before I go into Terror on the Prairie and why I'm framing it about values versus votes. That, that's my theme for today. And, that, and I say that because the Daily Wire is a political news organization that's a conservative political news organization. And people are attaching uh, their hopes for change in the American culture to a political news organization. And, and one of the things we should have learned by now is that political people and political organizations are going to eventually let you down because the vote is more important than the values. And so as I talk about terror on the prairie, I'm going to try to explain to you how we're bringing unreasonable expectations to a political news organization that, like all politics, whether Republican or Democrat, they wet their finger, put it in the air, see which way the wind is blowing, and they're gonna eventually bow to that wind. Because, again, votes matter more than values. And, and the reason why I'm bringing all of this up, and I'm going to, when I'm done talking about this, it's all a story about why what we're doing here at Fearless is highly important and what this whole Fearless Army thing is about. Mm, I hope the guys at the Daily Wire know I still love them and support them, but uh, I gotta speak the truth. Tear on the Prairie, not good. Uh, Wednesday, I moved on Michael Che of Saturday Night Live. He's another guy to break from the liberal stranglehold that, you know, everybody on January 6th is a nut job and the worst humans on the planet. Comedy's important. I try to explain why. Take a listen. The Saturday Night Live host, uh, weekend host update, Michael Shea. Michael Shea uh, took to Instagram uh, <laughs> yesterday, I believe, and, and the Daily Caller wrote about it because he, he posted some things on Instagram and then took them down. Uh, but it's very interesting what he uh, put out there originally. And I don't know if it's a gimmick, if it's a publicity stunt, but here's one of the, here's the thing that caught everyone's attention, uh, what he posted on Instagram. And I know I'm gonna lose a lot of customers for this one. January 6th hearings. More like January 6th, S-I-C-K, of hearing about this crap. So he knows this is going to be controversial. He knows he's supposed to stick to a script. He knows that 
this is going to bother the left and perhaps jeopardize his standing if he goes off the script and says, look, the January 6th thing is a joke, this hearing. And, and then he go after he deleted that, he went on to further uh, post some other things uh, trying to clarify. One is smart fans know exactly what side I'm on and how I feel about all this. I mean, enough is enough. We're being failed. I'm watching these hearings and I'm seeing the same thing you're seeing. And I'm just like, is anybody seeing this? Then he posted, sorry, I know I can lose a lot of my endorsements for saying this, but America, you know what to do already. It's unclear. And then, I'm sorry, this is the Daily, uh, the Daily Caller saying, it's unclear whether Shea's smart fans will ever understand how he, <laughs> they, they mock him for his punctuation. He later goes on to say, people are saying I'm still being too vague about what side I'm on, so let me, let me say it plainly in all capital letters, we, period, need, period, to wake up or we are going to lose this country. Michael Shea, is trying to come out of the closet as MAGA. He, he's saying the same things. Now, is he being authentic about it, or is he following the lead and looking at the success of people like Bill Maher, who has turned his real time on HBO show into must-see TV every Friday because he has been consistently pounding the left. He's been consistently cracking jokes and building an audience and a following of everybody by being more fair with his comedy. I, I, I say this, this is important. Comedy is important. Comedy is a gatekeeper of truth. And that's why I connect comedians and clergy. They're supposed to be gatekeepers of truth. They're supposed to take to the public square and say things that are truthful and uncomfortable for others to hear so that we all can enjoy freedom of speech and we can all talk about the real issues affecting America. Great comedians are really smart. That's what George Carlin, these guys are geniuses and they're geniuses at spotting the irony in life and their geniuses at calling out the establishment and, and taking on people with too much power. That's where Dave Chappelle has been operating in this space as it relates to the LGBTQ uh, transphobe issue. Bill Maher has been uh, coming out of the closet. It feels like he's been red-peeled. And now we have a guy on Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live is like the choir. Uh, for the Democratic Party, for leftists, for atheists, for all the people that are trying to tear down America. They, they only crack Trump jokes. They've left Biden completely alone for the most part. And I start, what we're seeing from Michael Shea and from other committees, it's just, it's too irresistible to not go at the other side. They've made such clowns of themselves. And to me, this has all been very predictable because you take Donald Trump away. You remove him out of office, and that's why they should have never done what they did at the election, because the left has nothing without Trump. Without Trump in the White House, and them constantly bashing Trump and blaming everything on Trump, now the left has to actually defend the things that it's doing, and it doesn't stand up, and comedians are finding it irresistible. Michael Shea is dipping his toe into the water that Bill Maher and others have warmed up. <laughs> and just, Michael Shea, his, I think his real name is Michael Shea Campbell, but his dad named him Michael Shea, gave him that middle name <laughs> as homage to Shea Quivera, the Marxist revolutionary, the Cuban Marxist revolutionary. Again, that, that's never been who Michael Shea says he is, but that's what inspired his name and his father. So he comes from people that celebrated Marxist revolutionaries, but things have gotten so bad here in this country and so obviously bad, and things have become so farcical on the left that he can't resist the temptation 
of going after the January 6th committee, the January 6th hearing, and what a farce it is, and how we're demonizing people, wasting all this money, holding this TV charade up, because the left has nothing other than Donald Trump. That's what the January 6th thing is. Don't talk about inflation. Don't talk about rising crime. Don't talk about a baby formula shortage. Don't talk about the stock market crash. It's January 6th. The, the, the people that stormed the Capitol, that's the worst thing and we must get to the bottom of that. All that, uh, 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 the riots of George Floyd and all that terrorism that happened then, that's nothing compared to January 6th. And so Michael Shea is actually coming in right where Jack Del Rio left off the Washington commander. Everybody can see the stupidity, the hypocrisy of what the establishment is doing, what corporate media is doing. And Michael Shea's bucking back, and so I, I say hats off to him. Mm. That's just a warm up for Thursday, where I really unloaded on LeBron James. Ethan Liming murdered at the I Promise School. LeBron James has virtually nothing to say about it. I'm gonna tell you why. LeBron's a bigot. Uh, five years ago, LeBron James claimed a vandal spray painted the N-word on the gate of his Brentwood, California mansion. At the time of the alleged incident, James and his family primarily resided in Cleveland and James was in Oakland participating in the NBA Finals. James's employees removed and painted over the racist graffiti before police arrived and could investigate. Nevertheless, uh, when discussing the crime uh, from the NBA's highest platform, James analogized what he and his family experienced to the mother of Emmett Till, the 14-year-old black boy murdered in Mississippi in 1955 for whistling at a white woman. Uh, here, let's take a listen to LeBron James speaking at the 2017 NBA Finals. I mean, as I sit here on the eve of, um, <clears throat> excuse me, on the eve of one of the greatest uh, sporting events that we have in sports, um, you know, race and what's going on comes again. But it just goes to show that, um, that racism uh, will always be a, a part of the world, a part of America. And, um, you know, hate, um, you know, in America, especially for African-American, um, is, uh, is living every day. And I think back to Emmett Till's mom, actually, it's kind of one of the first things I thought of. And, and the reason that she had an open casket is because she wanted to show the world um, what her son went through as far as a hate crime and, you know, being black in America. Um, so it's like it doesn't, no matter how much money you have, um, no matter how famous you are, no matter how many people admire you, um, you know, being, being black in America is, is tough. And, uh, and we got a long way to go. Um, you know, for, for us as a society and for us as African Americans until we, until we feel equal um, in America. So, spray painted graffiti that LeBron James and his family never personally saw made LeBron James think of the pain Mamie Till felt over the murder of her teenage son. James, in my opinion, was lying. The hate he whined about was a hoax intended to garner sympathy and elevate his brand as a social justice warrior. I believe that in 2017 when he first said it, and I believe it even more today, analyzing his reaction to the murder of Ethan Lyman in a parking lot at James's celebrated Akron, Ohio, I Promise School. Lyman and his family have far more in common with Emmett and Mamie Teal than LeBron James ever will. 
two weeks ago today, three men beat Ethan Liming, a 17-year-old honor roll student, to death near an outdoor basketball court at the I Promise School. Liming is white. His accused assailants are black. Liming and three friends were joyriding in his car and shooting a water paintball gun. That water paintball gun we're picturing there. They were shooting that out of the car. They stopped at the I Promise School. Two of Liming's friends, two black teenagers, got out of the car with the water gun and approached four men playing basketball. According to initial reports, Liming's friends fired the war, uh, water gun at the men. Three of the men chased Liming's friends back to Liming's car. Liming, a six foot one football and baseball player, stepped out of the car and tried to calm the situation. He was attacked. The three men beat him brutally. According to witness statements and the police report, the assailants punched and kicked Liming after he was knocked unconscious on the ground. The assailants then allegedly prevented Liming's friends from rushing him to a hospital. The assailants snatched one of the teenager's cell phones as they tried to call for help, took Liming's car keys, and moved his car to the opposite side of the parking lot. Liming's third friend ran away from the scene and called police. When the police arrived, Liming was dead. Approximately a week later, law enforcement arrested the three assailants. They've been charged with murder and sit in jail on $1 million bonds. So let me, let me give you a quick recap of what just happened here. Two black kids shot a water paintball gun at four black men sparking a confrontation outside a white kid's car. The white kid attempted to calm the situation. The three black beat him to death in the parking lot of the school fronted by a high profile racial justice warrior, the Muhammad Ali of the 21st century. So now you understand what happened. And so, Here's what LeBron James has had to say about that incident uh, from his Twitter feed. Our condolences goes out to the family who lost a loved one. My the heavens above watch over you during this tragedy. Pray for our community. LeBron's heartfelt grammatically challenged tweet included heart and crown emojis. There was no mention of Emmett or Mamie Teal, no mention of racial hatred or racial justice. Five black kids got in a fight and the white kid who initially acted as peacemaker got killed. What would LeBron tweet if a black child was brutally beaten by three white men in the parking lot of his I Promise school? I can guarantee you he would analogize it to Emmett Till and compare 2022 America to 1955 America. What happened to Ethan Liming is similar to what happened to Emmett Till. Till was alle allegedly trying to amuse his friends when he whistled at Carolyn Bryant, a white store shopkeeper. Days later, when told of the incident, Bryant's husband turned a would-be harmless joke into a murder that rocked America. The water gun horseplay of Liming's black friends sparked his murder. Deshaun Stafford, age 20, Tyler Stafford, age 19, and Donovan Jones, age 21, the three accused assailants, turned a harmless prank into a murder that LeBron James and his media sycophants want to ignore. LeBron wore a hoodie to protest the death of Trayvon Martin, a teenage boy in Sanford, Florida. LeBron ranted that black people are hunted every day after two white men shot Ahmaud Arbery. LeBron put a, a target on the back of a white Ohio police officer after he shot 
a teenage black girl who was attempting to stab a black woman. So all of this stuff in Ohio, uh, in, in Florida, uh, where Ahmaud Arbery, did that happen in Alabama somewhere? LeBron's got smoke for all of them people. But when violence and racial violence comes to his school parking lot, LeBron has nothing to say. LeBron has smoke for everyone white, he believes, wrongly takes a life. He has nothing substantive to say when black people take lives. LeBron James is a stereotypical racist bigot. Racial bigotry of any stripe is rooted in lust for power. The KKK terrorized black and white people who failed to support the racist policies of the Democratic Party. That's not an opinion. It's a historical fact. The, the KKK, founded in 1865, shortly after the Civil War, shortly after black people started seizing political power, the KKK was founded right here in Tennessee. And they started terrorizing people that wouldn't get on board with the Democrats' racist policies. It's always rooted in power, lust, for it. That's where racism is rooted. LeBron is a political soldier for the Democratic Party. His bigotry is rooted in lust for political power. Democrats have painted their political opponents as bigots. It's LeBron's job to promote that narrative. He pounces on every high-profile opportunity, and he's not above going the Jesse Smollett route and creating faux hate crimes. This dude analogized himself to Mamie Teal at the behest of his political puppet masters. He will never address the family dysfunction and chaos that leads to far too many black boys and black men settling conflict with deadly violence. The DNC, the Dead Negroes Confederacy, loves dead Negroes. The DNC forbids its constituents from publicly discussing the pervasive violence that plagues black communities and leads to dead Negroes. That issue is to be ignored until it magically disappears from indifference. Indifference is one of the most deadly and lethal emotions. LeBron James is indifferent to the violence that killed Ethan Lyman. LeBron, like many leftists, expects black men to randomly kill. Mm, I was fired up on Thursday. On Friday, we kind of just chilled out. I had Allie Taylor and Tay Lewis in studio talking music and then had a long discussion with Zuby. You guys know Zuby music. He's a rapper, he's an author, a podcast host, public intellectual. You probably heard him on Joe Rogan. Now you get to hear him on Fearless. His backstory and his conversation, all fascinating. Zuby Udezu, did I get that last name right? Udezue, close. Udezue. Udezue, Udezue. Yeah. I just know him as Zuby Music. I've been following his Twitter feed for a couple of years. It seems like he's an independent rapper from the UK, author of a new book, Candy Calamity, host of a podcast. I don't know if you know this, Zuby, but I used to host a podcast called Real Talk oh, yeah. uh, probably 10 years ago. And Zuby's podcast is called Real Talk with Zuby. He's a public speaker, entrepreneur, uh, born in England, but raised in Saudi Arabia? Yeah, that's right. You got an interesting background, and that's kind of what I want to get into. I, I'm I'm trying to, I'm fascinated by Zuby, <laughs> and now I want to learn why and what the backstory is. And so just walk us, through, you know, born in England, grew up in Saudi Arabia, lived a bunch of places. Walk us a little bit through your background growing up. Yeah, sure thing. So I was born, as you said, in England. My parents are originally from Nigeria. That's my family background, uh, Igbo ethnicity to be precise. 
When I was a baby, I don't remember this, of course, we moved to Saudi Arabia. My dad's a medical doctor. He got a job opportunity to work out over there in the Middle East. And we all went out there, seven of us, uh, my parents, myself, and my four older siblings. And all my earliest memories are in Saudi Arabia. When I was there, I went to an international school. So I was actually in the American school system from kindergarten all the way up until fifth grade. So for anyone who's wondering about my accent and why I don't sound like a typical Englishman, it's because of that. So I've I hear that. a little bit of it. You'll hear a little bit yeah. of it. Okay. Yeah, for sure. I don't sound like 100 percent American, gotcha. but I don't sound British either. So it, it confuses people in both countries and all over the world. Um, after fifth grade, I actually went to boarding school when I was 11 years old. So I went to boarding school back in the UK from the age of 11. So from 11 to 17, I was in boarding school from, I guess, what would be sixth grade onward. And then I did really well in school. I got top grades and everything, got into Oxford University, studied computer science there for three years. While I was in university, that's actually when I started making music and released my first album when I was in my second year of university. And then after that, I graduated. Uh, graduated when I was 20, took one year out and did my music full time for a year. And then I actually had a corporate job offer and I'd put, put it off for one year to work on my music. But then after that year, I moved to London, worked in the corporate world as a management consultant for three years for a big company. And then in November 2011, I took the big leap and became a full-time musician. So mm. I've now been self-employed for over 10 years doing all of my music to date. I've now put out six albums and three EPs in total, um, performed all over the place and added a lot of additional strings to the bow since then, especially since 2019. That's when I started my podcast. It's when I released my first fitness book, Strong Advice. And it's also when things just started to blow up for me. And a lot of people in the USA started to discover me. Up until that point, my audience was primarily in the UK and specifically for my music. And now people know me primarily in the U.S., but honestly, around the world and for a lot of different things. Yeah, I was going to ask that because let's say you got a million Twitter followers. Uh, what percentage of them do you think are American versus the U.K.? And, and, and then work because if you don't follow Zuby on social media and you don't fully understand, hey, Whitlock's got a rapper on or whatever, but Zuby is far more than just a rapper. Uh, you're a public intellectual mm. and you've been, uh, I think you've been kicked off of, or suspended for Twitter <laughs> for, uh, you know, saying the transgender crowd's not a big fan of yours. Is that, I said, I, I got temporarily suspended for saying, okay, dude, in reply to somebody. That's what I said. The tweet just said, okay, dude. Oh, you, is that you misgendered somebody? Is that what they're they, they were never specific. Someone was boasting about the fact that they sleep with more women than me. And I just said, okay, dude. And then a week later, um, I got an email from Twitter saying that I'd been, my account had been locked for hateful conduct. And I was like, wait, what, what's going on here? Initially, I thought it was like a, like a phishing, like a spam message or something. And then I tried to go on Twitter and yeah, I'm, I'm locked out of my account. And the offending tweet is literally, okay, dude. And so I, I thought it was some type of mistake. I appealed to Twitter and then it got a human review and they confirmed the following day that I violated their hateful conduct policy. So of the 100,000 plus tweets I've put out there, the one that went past the line was me saying, okay, dude. And so did you say, okay, dude, before or after uh, you announced you identified as a female <laughs> and broke some weightlifting records? Yeah. Uh, and that, that stuff didn't get you in trouble? Uh, uh, no, that, no, that didn't get, get me in any trouble at all. That was February 2019. So that was the flashpoint. So I've been on Twitter since 2009 and it took me 10 years. At the beginning of 2019, I had about 17, 18,000 followers. And that viral deadlift tweet blew up. That's how millions of people across the world discovered me from that, from the Joe Rogan to Tucker Carlson to Piers Morgan, Ben Shapiro, like people all over the map in all these different arenas that video was seen by millions and millions of people. So that was the flashpoint where that was like a tipping point where 
I came onto a lot of people's radars and then through that, people discovered my music and my podcast and my writing and my general thoughts and commentary. And ever since then, it's just been growing and growing and growing. So if you want to grow your social media account, identify <laughs> as a woman. Yeah, female that, privilege. Yeah, <laughs> that, that will do it for you. Wow. And so you said in 2019, you had 17, 18,000 followers. Yeah. And now how many do you have? On Twitter, 820,000. Yeah. Across the board, I think about 1.3 million. And so I'm sure that's benefited and fueled your rap career mm. and business and, and helped you uh, get financially sound and successful. Yeah, definitely. And um, it's been a long grind. As I said, I put, my, I put out my first album in 2006. So I think a lot of people don't realize how long I've been grinding on everything I do for. There's so many people, probably 99% of people who know me discovered me in the last three years, which is, which is fine. Um, but I think there's a lot of those people who, who missed out on the decade plus of real hustle that came before all of that. So some people might see it and go, oh, you know, he just you know, put out one tweet and things blew up. And it's like, no, no, no. There's a, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of grind that came before that and a lot of grind that's come after it as well. I mean, that, that was February 2019. So that could have been a flash in the pan and then faded out and disappeared as many things do. Lots of things go viral on the internet. But I've been able to maintain and sustain that and really continue to grow my audience and the amount of people I'm reaching through all the different channels of what I do. And honestly, life is really beautiful right now. Things are at a really exciting stage. I've sort of tipped into a whole new phase of my career and my life. And there's no one who does what I do in the combination that I do it, right? I mean, there are, there are rappers, there are authors, there are podcasters, there are fitness people, there are socio-political commentators and so on, but what I'm doing and what I'm building in combination is totally unique. So that's interesting and there's some trepidation around that because sometimes I'm like, man, like I don't even, I don't even know exactly what I'm doing or like where this all goes in the future, where will things be five years from now, a decade from now, it's kind of hard to predict, you know, it's going to be a lot bigger, but I'm grateful to have opportunities like this. I mean, the fact that I'm even in the USA and there are so many people here showing love and wanting to talk to me and work with me on different projects, even just knowing who I am. I mean, I'm an, I'm an independent rapper from the UK. I'm not someone who had like millions of pounds or dollars pumped into their marketing budget or who was plastered all over TV or anything like that. It's been really, really organic. I used to sell my CDs on the street that's how it started. I mean, for I did that for over a decade. That used to be the main source of my revenue. And then I started doing pop-up shops in different shopping malls in the UK where I'd sell my CDs and sell my merchandise. So the fact that I'm even able to travel around the USA and have all these cool opportunities and build projects and connect with great people in different arenas, for me, that's, that's just a huge blessing. And I don't and take so it for granted. help, and I know artists hate to compare themselves or be compared to some other artists, but just help uh, an average American rap music fan. Like, is there some American rapper that you'd say, ah, maybe I'm in that lane just mm. to help people understand your musical career? Sure. In terms of my, my style of music, I found that, I mean, I could, I could certainly say which if people listen to certain artists, then there's a good chance they'll like my music. I found that a lot of people who like artists, uh, and there's quite a broad range actually, Tech 9 Kanye West, um, Nas, stuff like Gangstar, um, Jay-Z to some extent. I'd say people who are fans of Lyrics. Some of those artists. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a lyrics guy. I'm about the words. I'm about wordplay. When you say Tech 9 you're talking to... That's I know Tech Nine forward and backwards. Yeah, uh, the Alpha and the Omega, and, yeah. <laughs> I know, and so that to me, when you say Tech Nine is one of the first names out of your mouth, I, incredible lyrics, mm -hmm. and it's like when you tech the music's good and may make you want to dance, but you got you want to lock in. This guy's about to tell you a story. Yeah, he's about to say something to make you think, and 
I, I, that's, it, what's your most uh, popular song? Probably OK Dude. <laughs> oh, you so ended I, up doing I made, a, I made a song called OK Dude. And um, I'd say recently over the past few years, that's, that's my most popular one. And so obviously it's about what happened to you, but can you give me a little it, taste? It, in, inspired by it more than directly about it. It's funny because I actually, Joe Rogan actually does the intro on it because he talked about the whole OK Dude situation and me getting deplatformed from Twitter on his podcast. So I took the clip from that and actually used it for the intro of the song. Um, so the track is, is related to that. It's more inspired by it than telling the story of it. But um, it's really, honestly, it was getting a lot of stuff off my chest because I put out an album in 2019 and then I had this whole whirlwind of craziness and travel and interviews and suddenly coming on a lot of people's radar. Um, and it's also when I started getting a lot of backlash and flack for some of the things that I was saying because suddenly I was kind of elevated to this position where you're more visible. So the more visible you are, the more people are going to attack you on social media. So I wanted to just address all of that. So the song goes into a lot of different things and was kind of just like airing out and venting some of the, some of the things that people had been saying. So yeah, that's one of my most popular songs. And then, so I, I listen, your dad's a doctor. That's right. Uh, I would imagine your mom's pretty smart too. Very. You're very smart, went to Oxford. It's, what do you think about a lot of rap, American rap, mm -hmm. is pretty stupid. And <laughs> you're really smart. Yeah. What do you think about what has happened to rap? Because I, you're not my, I'm 55. Mm. I was at rap at the very beginning. And I love rap the most when it was KRS-One and Public Enemy mm. and even an X-Clan and just that whole era where there was a consciousness and it felt like rap was gonna really educate and elevate mm. uh, black culture, and then it went another direction. And I'm just outsider who obviously probably inspired by American rappers. Yeah. What do you think of where rap music has gone? It, it's a great question. I'll be honest. I think when it comes to this particular topic, I do think that everybody tends to have a little bit of a bias on it. Based on their based on their age and what they kind of grew up with, because there has nonsense rap has always existed, unlyrical rap that's just about partying or women or flexing or jewelry and car like it that's always existed. Rap is delight is a silly song. Yeah, there's there's yeah. it's it's been there. Yeah. So and there is plenty of deep, conscious, strong storytelling, great lyrics. Now? There is now. There is, right? There's also the mumble rap and right. the, there's there's also nonsense and party music. And Does any of it get played on radio or anywhere? In the, in the States, I don't really know, to be honest. Yeah. I don't really know um, how much of it gets played on the radio here. I think that one of the problems with hip hop is that the truth is, I think, and, and people could have a whole debate about why this is, but a lot of the degenerate stuff is pushed to the forefront in the mainstream. So I think a lot of people, especially if they're not really into, into hip hop, what they hear and what, what they judge it on is off a few songs and artists that they're hearing on the radio or in the club and so on, right? Because mm -hmm. that's what's, that's what's popping, right? Like that's what is getting more attention. At the same time, you have got artists like Kendrick Lamar, J. Cole, even Drake to some degree, Logic, and so on, who are selling crazy records, selling out huge shows. So there are artists who are saying stuff and aren't just rapping nonsense, who are doing extraordinarily well, even in that mainstream lane. I, in fact, they're doing better than the mumble rappers. So I think, there's a, I think there's a little bit of bias at play when people discuss this. But I also think that when it comes to any genre of music, and hip hop for sure, You've always got the range. One thing that I tend to take issue with, certainly when it comes to mainstream and what's pushed out there on the big channels, is one of balance, right? I think if all you're putting out there is the, you know, the, the, the gangsta stuff and the stuff promoting drugs and promoting uh, having sex with everybody and you know, how much money you've got and all that, and 
it's completely lopsided and that's all, you know, someone driving in the car, listening to the radio, if that's all they're getting, then I think that's a problem. So I think, I think that balance has certainly shifted over time. I think the balance used to be better in that you could turn on the radio and you'd hear more lyrical rap and stuff with a better message and so on. Um, but I think now they've kind of gone more towards that sort of fast food, fast food lane music way. Um, honestly, the same thing has happened with, with food as well. You know, there's still plenty of great food out there, but the stuff that is pushed and promoted and you're hearing the ads for whatever, it's typically not going to be the best stuff for you. Not, that's another area I'm an expert on, uh, rap and food. All right, listen, go to youtube.com slash Jason Whitlock, hit the likes, hit the subscribe button. If you're a part of the Fearless Army, that means you've left a message here on Apple or somewhere explaining how great the show is. You've given me that five-star review. Uh, we'll see you next week. Love you.